So welcome everyone to STR's Meet the Scholar sessions. Um, my name is Samina Kareem, I'm the STR division chair. And we decided to start with a bang and we said, who is the first scholar we wanna highlight in our Meet the Scholar series? And we couldn't go wrong with Jerry George. So I wanna give you a quick introduction of Jerry. Um, so Jerry, let's see if, that's, if this is gonna cooperate with me, there we go. All right, Jerry is the Dean of the Lee Kong Shan School of Business at Singapore Management University, where he has been since 2015. He is also the Lee Kong Shan Chaired Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Previously, he held tenured positions at Imperial College London, London Business School, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has a PhD in Management from Virginia Commonwealth University. He served as AMJ editor from 2013 to 2016. And while there, he encouraged scholars to go beyond theory development and also to focus on phenomenon and to improve applicability of management research. Uh, various awards and recognitions, I could not include them all on this, uh, on this, on this uh, PowerPoint. So a few that I'd like to highlight. Um, he was named as the Innovation Fellow of the Advanced Institute of Management Research, awarded a prestigious professorial fellowship by UK's Economic and Social Research Council, and is a fellow of both the City and Guilds of London Institute and also the Royal Society of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce. He helped um, be part of the SMS Program Committee for 2008 in the special conference that was held um, in Hyderabad. He serves on the board of AACSB International Now, which is one of our main accreditation bodies. In 2017, he was tasked with redrafting the Corporate Governance Code of Singapore by the Council of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. He served on various committees and organizations in Singapore and India, influencing entrepreneurship and social impact in both regions. He's written or edited five books, published over 100 articles, has over 30,000 citations, and his research is primarily on internationalization and entrepreneurship, business models and open innovation, sustainability and tackling grand challenges, including those of the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals. So please join me in welcoming Jerry George. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Amina. Uh, before you go further, I just wanted to say uh, thank you for having me as uh, well, just a sharing session today. Uh, one of the things that I did say to you is that I'm not prepared or I'm not preparing anything. So you just uh, have a casual conversation about these. There are a lot of friends uh, here who've, uh, who are joining here who've had far more impact than I have. So from that perspective, at least uh, uh, let me say thank you to those who've joined and uh, um, I look forward to having a great conversation. So thanks to your colleagues to, uh, for arranging it. Thank you, Jerry, for joining us. So I, you know, this is my first time meeting you. And so I have so many questions. And so one of the things we wanted to achieve with Meet the Scholar is we're certainly gonna talk about your scholarship, but I, we wanted to learn about the scholar more holistically you know, where you grew up, um, the influences you had in your life, uh, the choices you had to make through your career. So maybe we could start first with, if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and people that were influential in your life when you were younger. Um, 
Uh, so I grew up in a city uh, uh, called Chennai, uh, Madras uh, in India. I went to school in uh, a Catholic school, uh, Don Bosco. Um, so got good Catholic Salesian education. Um, and then um, uh, from there, I went to uh, BITS, uh, which is called uh, in North India, a place called Rajasthan, Birla Institute of Technology and Science, one of India's uh, premier uh, tech uh, uh, engineering sort of uh, universities. And uh, so that's my India story. And I have to tell you, um, I come from a very uh, entrepreneurial family. I think one of my big inspirations, I'd have to say, is my mom, uh, who started putting that entrepreneurship spirit in, in, in me. Um, perhaps in, um, when I was in my uh, 10th standard, or year 10, right, uh, as uh, in school. So uh, my mom and I started this uh, uh, tanker business. Tankers as in these big lorries that carry water from uh, one place to the other. And uh, the reason we did that was because uh, Chennai at that time had a big water problem and it did again last year, uh, where the city ran out of uh, drinking water. So uh, we started off with one, uh, one truck. And then by the time uh, I finished year 12, we had 16 trucks. And then uh, we sold all those trucks. Uh, I used to uh, manage the night shift. My mom used to manage the day shift. So I'd work with truckers to coming in at night to give them sort of their uh, charge sheets of where they have to go and things like that. And then uh, in the morning, then they'll come back with cash and my mom picks up the cash. And so that's how we started that. So then of course, uh, and the reason for all of this was um, perhaps a difficulty in our family. My dad was an entrepreneur as well, but then he fell sick. Uh, so we had this, uh, he had this huge, um, what you'd say, pressure vessels business for power turbines and things like that in, in building all of these pressure vessels. So big engineering kind of uh, business. Uh, but then uh, he had a heart attack and sort of, uh, he fell poorly after that. So we lost that business, uh, right? And then, so sort of, it became a necessity to do something. And then we tried these things. And then since then I've been dabbling in entrepreneurship. So I guess my first inspiration for entrepreneurship comes from family, whether it's my dad, my mom, or certainly necessity, right? So, so since then we've been quite entrepreneurial uh, in trying out new things. And did any of the, is that business still part of the family or did any siblings partake in that as well? No, or? we've gone from other to other businesses after that. Uh, so then uh, we entered real estate in the family business. And then my dad again started, um, you know, these uh, air conditioning like in Dubai, uh, uh, these, uh, they uh, put air conditioning and electricity maintenance for these big buildings, right? And you, and so you maintain like the airports and so forth. These fellows cleaning the airports all the time. So, so it's, so we, we uh, my dad started that business, oh, well, 20 years ago. So my brother still continues that business and it's grown uh, terrifically in, in Dubai. So now he's, uh, he's, uh, he's doing well for himself, yes. So I have to ask you this, being from South Asia as well. So there's the joke that your parents say you have to be an engineer, doctor, or a lawyer. Yeah. And so you mentioned you studied engineering. Was that, a was that something you definitely wanted to do and you knew that you wanted to do from the beginning? 
so so uh, no, uh, this works slightly differently. In Pilani, what happened was I wanted to study engineering. Um, I got engineering in another college in uh, in in, uh, in Chennai, another tech tech institute. But what happened was that I didn't want to stay close to home, so uh, I went as farthest away as possibly one could possibly do. Uh, within India. So I went to the north, the farthest end, a little more and you'll be in Pakistan kind of uh, as far as you could go. Um, and and, uh, and in particular in BITS, uh, you, you get allotted based on your score, uh, whatever program you get into. So I got into life sciences, then I took a second uh, degree in management. So uh, so my, I've got two master's degrees, uh, integrated masters. One was uh, um, life sciences, biological sciences, and the other one was management studies. See, all right. So you had a had a touch of management in before, well before the, the PhD program, and and getting into what we do now. Sounds yeah. like. So, you know, I I I love um, one of the questions that. I have to give a shout out here to Rich McAdock because he also has a series that he's begun um, interviewing strategy scholars and it's, it's wonderful. And something that Rich does when he has folks out at Purdue is he asks them, you know, when most 10 year olds don't say, I wanna grow up and be a strategic management scholar. And so the question is, how did you end up um, be thinking even of doing a PhD? And so where did, from that management masters what were you doing next that then eventually led you into a doctoral program? Uh, I, I have to say, you know, uh, Pitts Pilani, the university that I went to, uh, the, they're, I think, the largest exporter of talent from India, right? So all my, um, so I was thinking I'll join the family business, but all my uh, uh, wingmates in, in the hostel, uh, right, in the dorms as, uh, is, um, so uh, the, one of my wingmates uh, said, uh, I'm going to take the GRE. Uh, I want somebody to study with me. So that's pretty much it. it. There was no rational reason for why I took it. So I just took it because he couldn't study by himself. So he wanted me to study with him. That's it. And then, then when he applied, whichever school he applied to, he also made me apply. So, <laughs> and that's it. There was no logical choice to this. But uh, I went into um, work for at and um, in, in their first, um, uh, you, you know, as part of the training in, uh, in, uh, uh, in university, you've got a practic practice school, sort of like an internship. So I went with at and and then after that, um, I was offered this opportunity to continue. And then at and had this office in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, so, uh, so it started off with, oh, maybe I'll go to AT&T in Richmond, Virginia. But then at that time, the AT&T went through a reorg. And so they said, oh, sorry, we can't take you. But uh, um, by, by, the, by that time, I, uh, I was in this city called Richmond, Virginia. And I could see the, um, the campus of the university, which is VCU. So when I was applying, I got into different schools. Uh, I would, had the choice of uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon or Indiana or uh, VCU, which was right next door. So I chose the lazy route and just went to VCU because I could walk from where I was to the university. That's it. 
Wow. I hope you're still friends with that friend who, who had such a <laughs> Yes, in fact, I am. I am. I am. <laughs> now, when, when you entered the program at VCU, did you have a family with you or were you a, a solo bachelor at the time? I, I, I was a bachelor. In fact, I was very young. I was uh, 24 at that time. Um, so my, my parents, very uh, traditional, very conservative Catholics, they thought that if I, if I stayed uh, in the U.S. longer, that I would be tempted uh, to marry a, a Caucasian woman. And therefore, uh, they said uh, you should get married right away. So they fixed an arranged marriage. Uh, they called me, I remember clearly, May, 6, May 16th. And they said, uh, uh, you're going to, uh, we've seen this girl for you. You're going to get married. Uh, what do you think? I was oh, fine. This, yeah, she's uh, smart, uh, good looking, all of these things. And, and uh, so then I flew back to India. Uh, and June 2nd, I got legally married uh, the, after the first year of my PhD program. Then uh, Hema came back with me in August. Uh, uh, we had a church wedding in August and we had like 1,500 people for the wedding. And then um, uh, came back, um, um, we got married 24th of August. Poor thing flew back with me on the 29th of August because I could start, I think uh, university started the first week of September or something along those lines. So um, first year, got married. Second year, had my first daughter. So that really forced me uh, because uh, I was really poor. And, um, and and I didn't have the uh, thing to ask my parents for more money. So uh, uh, we just managed by what we did. So, uh, um, so that forced me to do the doctoral program sooner. So I finished my PhD in two and a half years. Um, wow. And then, uh, and then I said, uh, okay, now get a job. So not, nothing that, nothing sharper to focus your mind than, uh, than having a family restriction or, or things that sort of force you to do it. Right, Financi financial necessity, right? And, and uh, necessity, <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, so, so I'm sure you, I love that you remember May 16th. So I'm, I'm sure you tell your wife that was the best day of your life. Uh, not quite, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> And in fact, uh, so August 24th uh, this year is our 25th wedding anniversary. So I'm here in Singapore. She's in London. So I'm trying to get permission from the Singapore government to go to London and come back. So we'll see if that happens. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So you said you did your PhD in two and a half years. I'm sure there are a lot of doctoral students on this Zoom call who are wondering, oh my goodness, it took me two plus years just to learn about what's been researched in the field, let alone to try to narrow a research question and to figure out what my dissertation should be. So can you tell us a little bit about how you even thought about the, the ideas that were interesting to you and then what you thought might be a contribution and ultimately what was your dissertation about? I, I think sometimes we think too much about what that contribution is and so forth, right? Uh, um, uh, and also at that time, you, you see my peers weren't all thinking about publishing an AMJ, right? So, so it, it really makes a difference on who you, who you uh, study with, right? Uh, and the peer effects that my peers were thinking about going into local universities in, in, in Virginia. Uh, and so uh, at that time, I thought, wow, my dream job. At the end of my career, I should be at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, right? Uh, because 
at that time, starting from VCU, nobody, when I told them, hey, I think I want to go to UNC as my dream job, they, people turn to me and think, nobody's ever gone from VCU to UNC. So, um, so you, you see, for that was aspirational at that time. So it all uh, sort of changes over time, right? Um, so my peers at that time were thinking that uh, if you finish fast, you can join another four-year college uh, uh, and, and start from there, which is exactly what I did. I joined the University of Richmond, which is a private uh, university, a very good university, as a visiting assistant professor there. And uh, because I graduated mid-year, through the mid-year, so I just joined there and I started teaching there. And then uh, a year later, I moved to uh, Syracuse. Right. Okay. So we have yeah. a connection. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. So <laughs> all I remember is snow, snow, and more snow of my childhood. So. I, I think it's still the same. It, it was uh, quite dumpy at that time. I'm, I'm sure it's improved. It's improved. So, so, Jerry, what, what was your dissertation research question? And um, uh, So, I did my uh, life sciences and management together, right? So, I, at that time, this was uh, 94, 95, and uh, I said um, uh, networks and competence of, in biotech industry, uh, right? So, how do firms collaborate uh, for innovation, essentially, uh, at that time? Um, so at that time, networks and innovation was an interesting uh, concept. Uh, um, uh, this is, yeah, 20 plus years ago, 24, 24 years ago. So, um, and uh, uh, there was this, um, uh, there, there were these papers on uh, 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 Powell's work and so forth on innovation. And I started thinking along those lines, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, so in my thesis, I looked at uh, one of the things that I did was university industry partnerships on, on uh, uh, biotech firms, uh, biotech innovation. And so I got that paper published, um, uh, Journal of Business Venturing. I uh, sent it to JBV at that time. It got accepted. Uh, interesting uh, time there. They were going through the journal, I used to do paper sort of uh, uh, reviews, right? Uh, you'd send print out three copies of those papers, send it in, and then they'll circulate the papers by post. Um, then the decision letter will arrive by post and so forth. Um, so what happened was uh, they had accepted my paper, then they lost the final version of my paper that I submitted. So two years later, I wrote to them and said, boss, I, I, you accepted this paper in like 2000, what, 98, 99, something like that. What happened? And then they searched for it and they said, oh, sorry, we completely missed it. And then uh, they published in 2002 after that. So uh, so you, you see, uh, you never know how these things happen, but uh, it, uh, it, it just worked. So JBV was my thesis paper, uh, got that out. And then uh, because I came from a place where I didn't have any uh, data, but I could write reasonably well and I, I Still think I've got reasonably strong conceptual skills. So I, I started writing these AMR papers. Uh, so um, uh, uh, on, uh, there was a special issue on privatization. So I talked about emerging economies and so forth, uh, privatization in emerging economies. And then in a conference in about uh, year 2000, 
uh, um, or maybe a bit earlier, I was sitting at the, uh, because I took Hema, my wife, uh, we, and my daughter, I, by that time uh, Vivian was born, uh, we had gone for this conference and uh, we were sitting at the back uh, uh, because Hema wanted to go for, for, for a tour and things. It was in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, the the last table of the conference where uh, Shakar Zara, Michael Head, Dwayne Island, all of them were sitting because they didn't want to sit in the front. So I was sitting there and I was thinking, hey, I've heard all of your papers. And I was talking to them and he says, oh, uh, and Shakar introduced himself. He says, uh, and uh, there was another person called Dan Jennings. Uh, he had written this paper in entrepreneurial entrepreneurship some time ago. And he says, I, I told him I expected uh, Shaker to, uh, in, in our mind we have, we conceive who these scholars are, right? Whether they write long papers or short papers and, and so forth. And I said, Shaker, I had expected you to uh, be writing those long boring papers, but it turns out that it's the other person. And then Shaker got this whole kick out of it. And he says, oh, maybe we should write together. Maybe we'll tell something. And that's how the absorptive capacity paper started. So we were brainstorming on innovation and then uh, we came up with that review paper. And that paper, um, now if I've got 30,000 sites, that paper is at least 10,000 sites. So it's a third of my citations. Uh, uh, from, from that one conversation sitting at the back, uh, back of that, uh, that, uh, that conference. So you, you touched upon something I wanted to ask you, which was, you know, you mentioned your dissertation was on networks and in the biotech industry. And then many of your papers that are very influential are with Shekhar Zara and especially this absorptive capacity one. So then how did your research evolve? Because you also mentioned you've done a lot of work in privatization and entrepreneurship in international areas and developing countries. So how did that trajectory happen? I, I I don't think I really had a strategy for for all of this, right? Uh, I was quite opportunistic in in what topics I'd pick. I knew emerging economies, so I wrote some papers on that, um, and then it took me into sort of this international entrepreneurship type of space uh, and so on. Then um, I was doing work on innovation, so that uh, continued as a pathway, right? So I I, I don't think we had. Um, I said, oh, I will not do papers in specific areas because, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I started off from VCU. I was, I was not in a place that had massive data sets. I don't even think we had uh, uh, access to uh, all of these fancy data that people now can download and run regressions till the cows come home. But uh, I couldn't do any of those things, right? So, so you had to write conceptual papers. So I, I think in a matter of three, four years, I think I wrote about four or five AMRs. Um, and, and that got me started in 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 sort of the space, and then uh, then I started adding uh, papers with data. We started collecting data and so forth. So, uh, yeah, we, that's it. So when you know, I my kids sometimes ask me this, and so I'm going to ask you the question: What would you like to be remembered for as your contribution from your scholarship? Because you have over a hundred papers and so many citations. If you had to pick kind of the biggest theme of what you would like to be remembered for in your work, what would that be? So if anything, I'd like to be remembered for management theories or, uh, with social impact, right? Uh, 
but actually we don't choose how we are remembered by. So, you, you know, most people would think of the absorptive capacity paper. Uh, nowadays, a lot of people ask me about grand challenges, which I, which I really appreciate. Uh, but it's, 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 uh, it's not a choice, it's a journey. In fact, uh, um, the AMJ, uh, if you think of pivotal points in my life, the uh, becoming AMJ editor, uh, associate editor first, uh, and then uh, uh, editor was, is, was a turning point because I've never had this theoretical uh, lens that I swore by, right? I just always picked uh, phenomena that were interesting. So being an AMJ editor actually made me think about why is our field so obsessed with uh, theoretical continuity rather than trying to explain important and rel relevant phenomena. And it also came at a point where a lot of people, including Anita Costas uh, at LBS, we had this workshop on, um, I'm sure Costas can tell more, uh, on uh, relevance based on Sumantra Goshal's work and so forth. And, and so that sort of that sort of, it's a combination of where you are at that time. I was at uh, uh, London Business School, um, and this importance of managerial relevance and uh, and my own background, sort of uh, the dependencies of where we go through. I wrote AMR papers, but I wasn't wedded to a particular uh, theoretical focus, right? So, uh, so you you just you just uh, go from there, and that AMJ experience was very pivotal for me, because if you then I started writing with uh, several collaborators uh, these editorials. Um, and uh, so, you, you know, if you look through our AMJ editorials at that time, uh, we had written for, for example, managing for resilience. Now we talk about resilience as though we've never heard of it before, but uh, uh, we've had these uh, uh, sort of different instances where we've done all of this, right? Um, uh, whether it was climate change, whether it was uh, uh, different topics like this, we've written uh, editorials on that. Another stream that sort of um, uh, pivotal time, uh, one was AMJ, which, which transformed the way I was thinking. But if I go back a little bit further was um, me going from LBS to Imperial. And in Imperial is, uh, uh, I went from London Business School to Imperial College. Uh, at Imperial, um, it was much more interdisciplinary, right? Uh, LBS was, uh, is a single school, it's a business school, it's a standalone entity. So all the conversations we are having were about business. But when I went to Imperial, all the conversations were about what difference you're gonna make and whether you're uh, sort of discovering a drug. Uh, uh, you had this uh, interactions with Nobel Prize winners in physics, uh, in biochemistry, and they all had a very different approach of view to life is, as saying, uh, oh, we are here to solve practical problems. Uh, so uh, you see, it sort of uh, became ingrained that exposure of interdisciplinary work. It's uh, of uh, uh, trying to be useful uh, in society and so forth, right? So um, at that time, one of the projects we started was this rural electrification in Africa. And uh, uh, the, we put a big grant for that. And uh, my collaborator uh, with, uh, was in the University of Southampton. Uh, engineering professor, civil engineering professor. Um, and then we said we created energy for development and that was in 2009, 10, around that time. 
and we said we'll electrify rural um, rural communities and then um, there was no research question at that time that sort of I was think I wasn't thinking what can we write about rural electrification and management theory uh, doesn't relate at all. Uh, so we say, oh wow, rural electrification, and it started with a simple phenomenon that, you, you know, in um, in rural East Africa, less than five percent of the households were electrified, and then you'd sort of ask, why is that the case? And when you start asking why, what can you do about it? Then you come at, come to a different place, and so we created this team. We started implementing uh, uh, rural electri uh, electrification projects, solar projects, and. Uh, different villages. We did these, uh, what we now post-hoc called uh, field experiments. Uh, and then I wrote this uh, SMJ paper on uh, um, entrepreneurship in Africa. But, uh, uh, you know, but it didn't start with entrepreneurship. It started with rural electrification and then it slowly progressed. So, uh, so what Imperial really taught me was that, that the importance of uh, interdisciplinary work the importance of asking big questions and uh, then trying to um, solve problems for society. And uh, along the way, uh, folks like Costas uh, uh, were inspirations. Uh, then I saw Anita, met Anita. We wrote, started working together. We wrote this paper on um, inclusive innovation in 2011 or 12, I think. Uh, uh, right, so, so you, you know, it's sort of, how it's the peer effect of people who uh, want to make a difference and then you sort of, uh, uh, sort of it happens. Um, I'm sure Anita, Anita, I'm gonna ask you a question. What, what did you think? About, about the paper, the experience of the paper or what you're saying generally? Uh, no, 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 about the paper. Don't, don't comment on what I'm saying generally. You can do that in <laughs> private. Um, well, you know, I think there's, there still is, to this day, tremendous um, kind of a pent-up energy in the field to engage with these issues of global significance. And Jerry, that paper which um, you, you led us in, in writing was, uh, you know, a, a sort of just tapped into a bit of that energy. Can I also say that it's just wonderful to hear you talk about your, your story and Many of us who know you well, who are on this call, including at Costas, who you mentioned, and others, will testify that Jerry is a person of enormous energy and excitement and positive affect. And he's always the, the question with Jerry is whether or not something is awesome or super awesome. Right? <laughs> so I pay Anita to say these things. Don't don't take me for it. <laughs> Thank you, Anita. That, Very kind that, of you. Very kind that of you. positive. Um, excitement and energy and commitment to friendship first and, and commitment to us as people really, I think, made that paper, came through that paper, I would say. Yeah, yeah. thank you, thank you. Yeah. So, so you see, the, I've had, it's, it's, it's not a choice. It's, it sort of wasn't very rational in my thinking. All of these sort of happened over time and you uh, sort of co-evolved with what happens with with the friends that you uh, sort of grow up with in some ways, right? So um, uh, then I was in at Imperial, I was AMJ editor. I'd just become editor uh, and I was deputy dean at that time uh, at Imperial. Um, so I was handling all programs and so forth uh, and the growth in that, that business school. 
And uh, then, uh, you know, the provost from SMU came with the chair of the advisory board and he came, flew to London and he said, you know, we are looking for somebody at, uh, uh, looking for a dean. And I said, well, I'm just become editor of AMJ. I'm really not into becoming dean. Uh, but he said, why don't you just come and see Singapore? Then, uh, okay, flew two weeks later, I flew here. Uh, Hema loved Singapore, right? And, uh, and uh, then uh, we also have uh, uh, sort of aging parents and all of those uh, issues that go with uh, folks in, in my cohort, uh, uh, right? And so, uh, so um, uh, uh, we have, uh, so Hema's uh, uh, parents and my parents uh, were all in India. So we say, oh, being near Singapore can help us think through this particular phase where we spend a few more years more closer to them. And so for, the, for Hema, it was very important. Um, her dad passed away uh, a few years ago, two, three years ago. So it allowed that connection and continuity with, uh, with them because we were in the US and the UK, uh, it's not the same as being, uh, being close to them. So the advantage of Singapore was she could take a flight at uh, seven in the morning and given the time difference, it's a three and a half hour, three and a half hour flight. She'll be there for breakfast at uh, her house at eight o'clock. So uh, she'd go and then spend like uh, two, three days and then come back uh, for the weekend here. So when I travel during the week, I come back in the weekend. So we are always together that way. Right? So, so it worked out very well uh, from that perspective. And of course, professionally, uh, SMU is, uh, is uh, uh, at that time an institution which was trying to figure out, oh, we want to grow, we want to do well. Uh, and so my job, they, when they described it to me, is to get us uh, uh, ranked uh, and visible in the world. Uh, so uh, um, uh, we started doing very well um, um, in terms of growing our programs. Uh, so when you become dean, you sort of, um, uh, sort of put the scholarly hat on one side, somehow you have to compartmentalize this. Uh, and then uh, you, you focus on building programs and, and hiring faculty and supporting faculty and all the people who are here, I'm sure uh, they sometimes they appreciate their deans. Uh, uh, but it's difficult work, it's difficult work and somebody has to do it. So if uh, any of you are inspired to be dean, I would certainly say, uh, we need great academics to be even better deans, uh, right? So I would certainly encourage that. No point in complaining about your dean if you won't step up. <laughs> good, good, well phrased. I like that, Jerry. Before I ask you, actually, I have some questions about being dean and, and at SMU. I wanted to go back to um, kind of what, what you would advise or suggest that junior scholars study. So it seems like a lot of what you said is, you didn't have a straight path or a, um, a, a plan exactly for what you were going to do, but that you seem very social mission driven, you know, and some of the phenomenon and, and problems that you wanted to address. So if you could speak to the junior scholars who are on this call or who will be listening later because this is recorded, what are the challenges? You know, you mentioned some of the grand challenges and I know you've done some work with the UN sustainability uh, development, sustainable development goals. Um, which grand challenges do you would you like to see junior scholars pursue? Uh, so, so my approach, I I would not recommend. I would never recommend junior scholars to pick one grand challenge and go after it or something along those lines. What what I would say is for them to think really hard about why they're doing their PhD, right? And uh, and if 
social impact is part of it, then to start thinking about a stream of research that connects where they they have some background in to how you would uh, then be useful in society in framing different questions or helping or enabling organizations to do that. And in that process, uh, develop a research theme or a stream that comes about. I'll give you an example. I wasn't really a rural electrification expert. In fact, I, you know, I didn't even know what, whatever power, how you would do this in, in battery powers and solar and so forth. But, um, but what I did know is uh, how can you think about micro entrepreneurs and how could you think about uh, new business models? So when I was listening to the framing of the problem, the framing of the problem was uh, that uh, uh, the UK government spends over a hundred million pounds a year on rural electrification projects. And then I just asked the question, um, how successful are they uh, after they leave? Because I did know that many um, sort of these projects, uh, development projects, people enter, do stuff, then they leave, and then it falls apart. Uh, so when I asked that question, they didn't have the answer to it. The minister at that time didn't have the answer to it. So afterwards, uh, you, you had these conversations and then they came out with this call that sort of says, okay, we don't have the answer to it, but uh, how can we create business models for success of, so that you can replicate these business models across different communities? And so I was working on entrepreneurship, on business models. Then we connected with uh, the engineering guys and say, hey, maybe there's something here that we can do, right? And, and how do you solve this big problem? And I think it's that inquisitiveness based on your own lens of the world and to see problems and say, is there a way where we can be opportunistic in how we collaborate, but that allows you to build on your strengths. So for a junior scholar, I would always start with, where do you think your strengths are and where do you think your passion lies? And then from there you start and say, ask, start asking questions, not from a theoretical perspective, because not once did I go back and look at what theory was there on this. Instead, you, you sort of ask what was important to be done, what was the outcome, what does performance mean? And then work backwards and say, what are the pieces that are missing within this? And then we wrote, first wrote this review piece on business models in rural electrification. And the, so we, when we did this review, we understood that replication was a problem. Scalability was a problem. And then you sort of internalize these and said, okay, now how can we build solutions that are replicable and scalable? And then you, you, you start going into what we theoretically call org design issues. We can call governance issues and so forth, right? Uh, uh, but then you start with the phenomenon and say, why can't we electrify villages more efficiently? And why can't we recreate this in different communities and make it succeed? So we, we came across uh, challenges of um, you know, ownership. Uh, we have fancy titles for this in theory, but you know, if you give it to one entrepreneur in a village, the entrepreneur becomes arrogant and starts charging lots of money, right? Uh, so then it falls apart and then there's a lot of politics behind it. Now, if you, if you then give it in another format in a, in a, in a sort of a, um, like a business, uh, create a business and then do it yourself, that means then you're engaged throughout. So in other words, you're trying to play 
in the community's life for a longer period of time, which you don't want to be because, you know, uh, you know, academics attention is like a gnat, right? So uh, uh, we lose interest after a year, but it's the livelihood of the entire community, which is at stake, right? So uh, we don't take up that kind of responsibility. So then we came up with this whole, maybe we should try a cooperative model. So we started thinking about governance issues and scalability. So, the, so you see, when you go through practically what are problems that are required to be solved, you then start framing it in your mind in theoretical conceptual language. Then over time, you build this vocabulary of stuff, right? So I wouldn't recommend it for a thesis, but I would recommend it for a career, right? For a thesis, do whatever you can in two and a half years and get the bugger up. I don't know if others can do it in two and a half years, Jerry. Three years, That's okay, well, whatever it takes. But, well, so let me ask you this. I mean, it's it's wonderful to see that you you wanted to address problems and then you almost worked backwards to to answer, okay, you saw the the more overarching themes such as, you know, business models and replication and, the, and then you could write about those things for our journals. So from my point of view now, I see you're a very successful scholar and you had all this work published. For folks who are junior, can you tell us some of the challenges you had along the way? So were the journals you know, embracing of this um, kind of problem-driven research that you were first doing? Or what were some of the hiccups along the way that now we see a successful scholar, but I think it would give some people you know, motivation and some drive to hear that from you. So I have to tell you, uh, over time, the academy is much more uh, business friendly and phenomenon friendly, but it has not always been the case. Uh, if you look back for 20 years, 30 years of academy presidents who've been saying that uh, uh, we should be a lot more phenomenon friendly. If you look at uh, Anita's speech, you will see that. You would see um, uh, others well before her, 10 years and so forth. Uh, or on people giving uh, uh, their academy presidency speeches of uh, why the, the academy should matter more and that our theoretical focus is probably taking us in the wrong way. Um, but I think it's a, the challenge is we still need that theoretical focus because the theory is the one that continues from one paper to the other. It's a, the thread that holds it together. It's not the phenomenon that holds it together, right? So. So we still need that theory. The, the question is the difficulty of how you marry both the phenomenon while you are true to the theory, right? So um, uh, I was actually pretty good in theory because I, I didn't have any data. So I had to make up stuff and write stuff, right? So, um, so, so I, I, I did that early on. Uh, if you look at my early uh, papers, um, uh, most of them were, um, were conceptual papers, uh, and uh, uh, so so one of my other colleagues uh, was uh, uh, doing his PhD. He got the data from his work on. Uh, uh, he wanted to see salespeople and commitment, and I say, hey, you know, those these OB folks never actually measure performance. Uh, so can we see if commitment is related to performance? And that's pretty much it, right? So I wrote the name J with them in two thousand one. Um, simply with this idea that commitment leads to performance and that there are different types of commitment. And we could measure that with sales data. For OB folks, it's a stretch because we didn't use any scales. We didn't use any surveys, we, right? We just measured stuff on, on yeah, secondary data, right? Uh, 
and and I wrote it almost like a strategy paper, which upset a lot of OB people. Uh, uh, but uh, you you just become creative in the type of work that you do. So, uh, so people who are starting now, I would say, be intensely practical. Figure out where is it that you can actually um, have some advantage because you know ideas are a dime in a dozen, a dime a dozen, right? Everybody's got the same idea. Uh, in the past week, I've had at least five or six people writing to me saying, I'm working on this review on resilience. And I said, you and 20 others at the same time, right? Uh, but it's not on the ideas themselves. It's all on execution, right? When you're junior, the speed of execution matters more than anything else. Right? When you're senior, it really doesn't matter, right? Your world moves slower because I have to tell you, my world moves so slow. Uh, because we, we, uh, the things that I do, others cannot do, right? So uh, I work with very strong people and then we sort of say, let's pick topics that we want to write about and then we do it over time, right? And then with some of my junior colleagues, I write papers that need to move out faster. So, uh, so you operate on two cycles, uh, time, time cycles rather than one. But when you're a junior scholar, Speed is the only thing that matters. It doesn't really matter. Um, uh, well, it probably matters, but it, I don't give it that much primacy on what you want to study and so forth. If, you, if your advisor has some strength in some area and some data, use it, do it, get out. Get out, <laughs> get, out get a job that will give you a paycheck. All right. It also gives you that stability. Then you've got a six year clock, right? So you, you'd want to build up things. Nowadays, people say you have to be in your program for five, six years, develop all of these things before you go out. I don't know, that's not my, my, my model. Can I ask you, Jerry, um, so now you're Dean, you've done amazing things at Singapore Management University and specifically with the business school. What would you still like to achieve as Dean there? You've so I have to say, uh, thank you. So I have to say that I've just announced that I'm going to step down at the end of next June uh, as Dean, right? Because it would have been uh, nearly seven years as Dean. And I think uh, that's enough time. Uh, it's also because I think whatever I was asked to do, I've delivered. So now I need a different kind of challenge. And for me, I've got heroes like Anita or who are great academics who don't have to be dean. So I, I think I'm gonna be an academic for some time and not be a dean for some time. Um, and, and part of that is, so, so you, when you become dean, um, you've run a business, right? You're an entrepreneur. So, uh, so when I sort of took over as dean of the business school here, um, our revenues were about, were exactly $87 million. Um, and now it's about $140 million. A and how do you do that? You expand programs. It's uh, because you're an entrepreneurship scholar you're, and, and you're very much, I'm very much an entrepreneurship guy. You have to start thinking about growth as a way for you to become better. It's very difficult when you're standing still to become better because you don't have degrees of freedom. I've written a paper on Slack before, 
uh, right? And and only when you have Slack are you able to invest and grow in different ways, right? Uh, uh, um, so so I knew upfront if uh, if we needed this to be a top school, we needed to grow. And so we uh, we grew our undergrad program. Our we more than doubled our postgrad program, um, and then. Uh, about three, four years earlier, I started ranking all our programs. So now across all our master's programs, we are in the top 50 in the world. Um, our exec MBA program is probably the, uh, the best mainstream program, which is 22 or 23 in the world. And our master's in wealth management, which is a specialist program is third in the world. So uh, the, our MBA all in the top 50. And part of that is uh, there's no secret. You just have to get better faculty. Um, you have to get your faculty to do more interesting things. Uh, you have to find ways to connect with uh, industry a lot closer. So now many of the projects that we do, uh, I'm able to access data directly from companies and saying, what's your, what are the problems you're working on and how can we help solve that? And then now my uh, collaborators all work with industry using industry data. So that's why I'm, uh, it's a two cycle speed because you're not gonna replicate that data. So I'm gonna have a different speed at which I do. So I become lazy, of course, not lazy. I just get crowded out in terms of attention. But, uh, but if, if all you're doing is publicly available data like most junior scholars, then speed is the only thing that matters because everybody can replicate that data set, right? So I'm, I'm curious and scared to ask you the next question, which is as Dean, are you able to maintain other hobbies or interests that you have? What is no, I, I'm a super boring person. No, no. Uh, my hobbies, I think I would say is watching Korean soaps. I'm really good at it now. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, 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 you know, I have to say why I watch Korean soaps. It's, um, it's beautiful people. Mm -hmm. You don't understand the language. So you've got English subtitles. So you don't have to pay that much attention. Uh, the music score, the uh, cinematography and everything is just beautiful. The Koreans do a wonderful job and there is no storyline. So it really doesn't matter. So you're just watching it with the idea that you would not think of anything about work, right? So. I, I, I watch maybe 30 minutes to an hour of Korean soap uh, and it sort of, sort of brings me back to like a meditation mode. Mm -hmm. To just unplug. Uh, uh, correct. Uh, some people unplug watching music, some people unplug reading something. Um, I watch Netflix and that it does it for me as well. So it's good. I'm going to try Korean soaps. I haven't tried that, Jerry. Thank you. For uh, the newest one is The King. I would recommend that. Okay. I'm so glad you answered the question that I didn't need to ask, which was why Korean soap. So that was that was great. Uh, so are there? Do you have? A, you know, there's some other fun questions that I wanted to ask before we turn it over to the audience. So one is, do you have any favorite author or genre of books or any specific book that is your favorite? Uh, so. Um... Uh, well, I, I don't do favorites like that. Uh, I, in fact, I don't get as much time to read. The one that I'm reading now is a book called Popular. Uh, sort of, it's an interesting book. It's a fellow called Mitch Princeton, I think, in UNC. Uh, and uh, he's a psychologist, I think. And he's sort of uh, talks about uh, uh, 
uh, people get obsessed with status and search for status and these people are the most unhappy people because they never status is never enough um, but he talks about likability and he says that uh, those who strive for likability are uh, uh, probably more happy so i'm i'm trying to think about uh, how i'm um, implementing his wisdom in my life likability you're very likability i can tell you that for sure so. likability versus status effects or status effects uh, yes so so, anyway. so you mentioned you'll be stepping down as dean next year what are your plans then you you mentioned you want to be an academic again not a dean so what are yeah. some of the the things you want to do uh, so so uh, so now is a point where I'm thinking, rethinking what it is. I, I want to connect back to entrepreneurship in, in, a, in a deeper way. I want to connect back to policy. Um, uh, there's a project that I didn't talk to you about, uh, about which I worked with the WHO and UNAIDS and so forth. I'll come back to that. But those projects had a profound impact on sort of, you know, this idea of uh, how can uh, management academics solve uh, uh, challenges of, um, you, you know, the global challenges. So, um, so whatever job I take, uh, whether uh, it's going to be in Singapore, in, uh, in, in another sort of, it's not going to be a purely as an academic role, it's going to be a hybrid role. So one option is for me to stay in Singapore, but work with some of the institutions here. Uh, the other option is for me to move back to the UK or to the US. I'm a citizen of both, all right? Uh, and uh, then connect back with policy and entrepreneurship and see if there's a meaningful impact in different ways, so yeah. Can I ask you, Jerry, where do you see the field of strategy and entrepreneurship intellectually in five years? So what do you think will be our greatest challenges in both kind of theory and empirical work? So, uh, so, so I'm not smart enough to answer that one, right? Uh, you need much more brain power for for the, for that and and i'm not even sure how you can call sort of the strategy i can i think i can call strategy more than i can call entrepreneurship uh, honestly in strategy as a field i i think we would have lots of new methods and i think we will be revisiting some of the older questions with completely new methods and come to different answers right um I think we will re-question this idea of performance as an outcome and this idea that uh, stakeholders matter in different ways and how does that profoundly shape uh, strategic decisions and governance and partnerships and so forth. And I think there is, uh, there is something there that will become more prominent over time. Um, we have these words of uh, shareholder value, then we had um, sort of uh, shared value. Uh, and, and so now we'll have different words that will emerge over time uh, as, as the world itself figures out that it does uh, need to do a better job of managing its stakeholders. And uh, this notion of shareholder primacy uh, will evolve. Uh, and that will evolve based on uh, the institutional environment evolving around us. Uh, so I know in strategy, our language will change. Our focus on performance will change. Um, we will have new uh, tools and methods uh, to think about it. Uh, um, we will start, I hope, obsessing less about endogeneity concerns and more about uh, um, uh, 
identifying the real problems, right? Uh, instead of trying to identify the methodological issues, uh, try to identify the real problems and solve that, right? So, and I think we'll see a lot more uh, traction in that, uh, those spaces. In entrepreneurship um, as a field, um, th there is a lot, lot happening in entrepreneurship, but I'm not sure that uh, it has a single organizing rubric as uh, strategy has, right? And, and so what has happened in entrepreneurship is that there are multiple um, parallel conversations on, um, for example, who becomes an entrepreneur, roles of an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurship within the ecosystem and so forth, right? So there are multiple conversations that are happening there. And I think each of those strands will have value. Um, what I don't know is whether there will be a unification on, on any of these, uh, these areas, right? Or, or one will stand out as being more prominent. Um, but, but entrepreneurship will, has become mainstream because of the sheer size of its membership. There are a lot of smart people doing entrepreneurship work. Um, where we'll have to see is the formalization of some of those theories, um, the, the adoption of shared language in, in those theories, um, and uh, possibly the adoption of new methods uh, within those. Thank you, thank you, Jerry. Maybe it's the wrong answer, I don't even know. No, no, that, that was very informative. Um, I, love, I love what you said about, um, you know, we may have different methods now and we may come to different answers about a lot of the questions that we've been asked, asking in the past, so. Correct, uh, so take COVID for example, we, we take, uh, uh, we have this um, social construction of input-output combinations, right? So we believed that we have to have face-to-face -face teaching for, for a good uh, experience. Uh, some of that uh, has been challenged more recently, right? Uh, I have to tell you, I developed one immersive online learning class uh, uh, on a new platform. And uh, my, I always do well in class. Uh, uh, on a seven scale, I usually do about 6.5, 6, 6.6 6 on a seven. But uh, my online class is 6.9 on a seven. I don't think I can beat that, right? So, uh, uh, so you, you, you know, um, maybe there are different ways of achieving what we want to achieve. So for us, we'll start questioning these uh, social constructions of what is an input-output combination, right? We, we thought we needed to be physically present to collaborate with each other. Maybe not, right? Uh, Definitely. I think just even all of the things we've been doing, um, our outreach, and again, what technology has made feasible is, you know, unprecedented, right? Correct. What we have now. All right, thank you so much, Yuri. I, I really want to include all the participants before I open the floor up for questions. And I'm going to ask folks um, if you could raise your hand in either through the, the Zoom mechanism of reactions or you could um, just put a note in the chat that you'd like to ask Jerry a question. I would first like to take a screenshot though, and this is for our publicity and branding. I've been told by our communications director, Paolo, that I need to do this. So. If you feel comfortable showing your video, that would be great. If not, then it's fine if you, if you, if you don't. But if everyone could join us who, who's, who would like to, then I'll tell you when to look at your screen and to smile. All right, how's that? 
right, hold on one second. Let me make sure I do this right. All right. Ready, everybody look on smile. One, two, three, cheese. All right, I think I got a good picture. That's great. Thank you, everybody. Um, and so now I'll, I'll open the floor up for, for questions. Let me just make sure I have um, my chat feed open. I'd closed it to take the picture. So one second. All right. All right, so folks who have questions, if you could use the, I think it's the, the fastest ways for me to just see um, people raising their hand. I think that would be the easiest way. Questions for Jerry, you learned so much. I know going first sometimes is daunting. Anita, go for it. Thank you so much for this wonderful uh, experience of getting to know you even a little bit better after so many decades of friendship. Can you say a little bit about what you think is happening with COVID right now and what it may mean for entrepreneurship and strategy in practice and in, in scholarship? So, uh, so if you look at um, uh, COVID itself, uh, it challenges some of our assumptions, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm working on this uh, sort of editorial for uh, JMS. They asked me on how is it going to change uh, uh, innovation research? And so there are a couple of assumptions that we take for granted in our research. One is co-location, geographical proximity. Uh, we, we talk about uh, uh, social effects, that uh, we, we have to have social connections for, for something to work. Uh, the discussion that we had earlier on input-output combinations, we assume that you need certain things as a necessity before we do some other things. And so these um, questions, these assumptions get relaxed. So when these assumptions get relaxed, then you sort of say, um, how will this change our research and innovation or uh, entrepreneurship? Uh, for example, you talk about um, um, theories of collaboration, coordination and uh, collaboration. Uh, would we have different views of uh, the outcomes of coordination uh, if we didn't have uh, uh, physical closeness? Um, and would we have different patterns if we thought about it that way? Then the role of technology as enablers, uh, we, we know uh, video conferencing but you also get new technologies that are completely different. Uh, we, we, we talk about uh, AI issues um, and machine learning and many of these instances, but the new technologies are starting to, for us to sort of um, shape some of these conditions for us to, um, to work together or, 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 um, uh, uh, or, or perhaps uh, redefining what we think of as creating value. Uh, COVID also has changed the way we think of what is important in terms of outcome and its effects because the pandemic's uh, implications are, it affects social inclusion in a far uh, more profound way. For example, uh, I'll give you from my experience, um, we said, uh, 
all our exams are online, right? And I'm sure all of you did that the same thing as well. But when we did that, uh, the, only the dean can exempt students from writing exams if they're not online to come back to campus. So I got these emails from kids, uh, from students, saying that, you know, we are seven members in our family and we are in a two bedroom flat. Uh, I cannot write an exam from my apartment. Uh, I just cannot do it. We don't, we forget that there are folks in this world who are barely, barely scraping by and events like these make a massive disruption in their, their, whole, their whole world, right? Uh, uh, I've had uh, students who are, a um, couple of students who, uh, uh, one's, uh, one's dad is a plumber and mom's a cleaner. And uh, when they talk about, you know, I cannot do classes online simply because I don't have the reliable connection that you assume that all Singaporeans have, right? Uh, so, so the outcomes of, of that is felt disproportionately, right? Um, the same thing we talk about gender. We, I know in the US you're talking about race quite a bit nowadays, but uh, you talk about gender, right? Uh, um, think about junior faculty who are putting up their promotion packages for next year, uh, completely gone haywire, right? Because they're not getting their uh, reviews back on time. Um, their life is being disrupted because they have to, uh, you know, in a very male dominated society, they also have to care for their kids. Uh, some of them uh, uh, also have to care for older parents. Uh, so the effects of these outcomes are far more um, different, right? So, so you have to say when an event happens like this, who benefits and who loses, right? Uh, there's a Latin saying, um, word called qui bono, means, yeah, who gets the value out of it? So when you think of innovation research and innovation entrepreneurship outcomes, some entrepreneurs will benefit because they are either figured out a better business model, they've been able to adapt, uh, they're more resilient, uh, you, can, you can have these different words for it, but others lose out completely. So we have to start asking these questions on, um, what gets disrupted, what was the causal mechanism, the assumption that gets relaxed, and what are the contingencies? How did this make a difference, right? Uh, I was having this conversation, I'm working with one of the banks here. We are analyzing all their data on um, credit decisions. And what we're finding now is that what happened with COVID is that those that had weak social capital uh, are unable to uh, sort of uh, sustain through this crisis. So what does weak social capital mean? That means you've created boards that are not connected. And typically uh, these are in uh, racial or ethnic groups that are not the mainstream groups, right? So then you start asking very different questions is that if you want to improve policy effectiveness, you shouldn't be targeting more broadly, but you should be much more specific in how you target these, these SMEs, right? Uh, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of these questions, but I think it comes down to assumptions. What assumptions have we relaxed? Um, who benefits? Who does it disproportionately affect in terms of outcomes? And what were the new contingencies that sort of came up with and what has changed within this? And I think this will fuel plenty of questions. 
uh, over the coming years. Thank you, Jerry. There's one person in chat asking a question. Yes, we oh, have no. we have several other questions in the chat. Um, some of some are sending them to me privately. So maybe I can first ask Jing if you could unmute yourself and ask your question. Ask your question. Hello, yeah. Professor Jerry. Uh, I am Jing, a uh, first year PhD student in Purdue University uh, in strategic management. Yeah. Uh, actually, I have just one follow up question because you mentioned like you. You're saying there are some new methods that can be applied to this field. Probably will revise some important questions previously we analyzed, right? So I am wondering what are those new methods that can be applied? Can you give so, me an example? Yeah. So, so clearly you've not read my AMJ editorial on <laughs> data science. <laughs> oh, sorry for that. <laughs> so if you look at it, uh, there was a 2016 editorial on uh, new data science methods and asking new questions, new, uh, new answers for old questions. And there's a whole section on how you can revisit some of our assumptions with new methods, right? So one of the papers that I'm working on now is uh, uh, revisiting this whole idea on patents and uh, with a uh, co-author of mine, uh, Simon Chilovitz. Um, we are using um, sort of semantic language, so natural language processing on, on patent data to see whether uh, emerging hotspots based on language uh, and how firms position themselves near these new hotspots uh, benefit firms. And what we find is that uh, they're not all firms benefit by just chasing after the new hot language, right? There are certain types of firms that benefit and we just call them generalist and specialist and uh, breadth and depth and things like that. But essentially we're, we're going back after these sort of old questions that sort of says, uh, when there's a new technology, uh, who's the one likely to benefit from adopting new technologies? Except we are doing it in completely different ways than what we used to do before. Thanks. Jerry, I have a, there's a question from Asim. Uh, Jerry, that was fascinating. Um, you know, I was, I, was, I was hoping to hear a little bit more, uh, and I know you mentioned, you never actually got around to talking more about it, but the WHO collaboration. Oh, great. I think more generally, you know, just as someone who's done a lot of work working with policymakers trying to actually make change happen in the real world as opposed to studying it academically. Like, what is that like? What are the challenges? What are the sort of benefits or joys of that uh, that you've experienced? Uh, uh, first, I have to say it's very difficult working with uh, multilateral institutions because they are massive bodies. They're not like one person things, right? Uh, it's not like a CEO who has control over a firm and you go to the CEO and it all works. In fact, the head of WHO probably can't control what goes on in the different uh, parts within it, right? That's how these multilateral bodies work. But the project that I started was, we, I was having this breakfast meeting with uh, one of the medics at the university. And that time he was the head of, um, he was the director of uh, um, the, uh, UNAIDS, um, Gates Foundation, they had this, this program together for the prevention of mother to child transmission of HIV. So, and he started with a simple phenomenon and I was saying, 
he was asking me, can, can you help explain why this is the case? And the phenomenon was, started off with India as an example, that uh, a child being born um, uh, to a mother who has HIV, if the child, if the mother has a particular tablet uh, at the time of birth and within 24 hours before she starts breastfeeding, then the likelihood that the child contracts HIV is reduced significantly by like 70-80%. Right? Why? Because HIV does not pass through placenta, but it passes through colostrum, the breast milk. So, uh, and you know, in most other, most countries, developing countries, uh, mothers breastfeed their children. And, uh, and it's seen as taboo uh, if you are not breastfeeding your child, right? Uh, because uh, uh, your mother-in-law will start questioning you and saying, oh, why are you not doing that? Because the, the woman has probably not told the mother-in-law that it was your son who was naughty and who slept with, uh, uh, you know, a prostitute on the way that he's driving a truck. Uh, and then comes back to the village and gives the HIV to me and now I'm having a baby. Because if she tells the mother-in-law, she's going to get chased out of the house, right? Because uh, they, that's how that world works. So now you, uh, the question then becomes, what are the organizational failures that happen that could have been mitigated by giving that mother, that child without anybody else, uh, giving that mother the medicine without anybody else knowing in their family, right? So this goes into all sorts of management theories, right? You talk about information disclosure, asymmetry. You know, I don't consider myself to be an OB guy or a strategy guy. I just go and talk to people and they'll explain a problem to me and then I'll figure out what lens you want to adopt. Is, is... So, so you never go, my first lesson to uh, engage in public policy or even businesses, never go with a lens, just go to understand the problem. And then you adopt the lens from there, right? So that was what happened is that then you start asking these questions of uh, institutional failures in information sharing, right? So between uh, very simple things like the woman goes in India, for example, the woman goes from the husband's house uh, to her mother's house to have the baby, right? And typically they're not in the same village. So what happens is that one village that has been following her loses track of the patient because she goes to have a baby somewhere else. And they don't have the foresight to actually give the medicine to her when she comes the first time around. So you see, so then the woman gets lost to the system and they call it lost to follow up, right? There's a technical term for, oh, we just don't know we're lost to follow up. So, so this is a simple example of a coordination failure within an organization, because if it's the next neighboring village, it's very easy because you're within the same district system anyways. You should have known, right? Uh, you should be able to transfer that knowledge, but we don't. So, so then you start asking, okay, that's on the institutional side, but then you also think of, you know, now you talk about COVID virus and the lack of PPE and all of this stuff. This is the same stuff that happens everywhere in the world, right? So nurses don't have that medicine to give the, the patient that medicine when they come. The doctors don't show up at the time the, the nurses, uh, the patients come. And so what happens is that uh, you've got uh, failures in the system in terms of the institution. 
you've got failures at sort of the sort of at the practice level and then you've got individuals stepping up like um, magnanimously in fact uh, right we call these extra role behaviors right uh, individuals who step up to address these shortcomings right and that's that's how so now we are working on this paper on um, uh, dirty work and uh, uh, organizational failures in, in in dirty work settings right uh, so if you're caring for hiv patients it's stigmatized so when stigma happens coordination fails because communication fails then what we are looking at uh, the study is about how individuals step up to bridge that communication failure seems like a very simple study but if you look at what's happening with covid uh, uh, I'm, i don't know if it was in the us but i know in the uk um, people were saying that nurses didn't have uh, PPE, uh, there was no protective equipment, uh, uh, and so they had to step up when the institution had failed in some ways, right? The lack of coordination, all of these things. So you just figure out, okay, how do you go in, understand a problem, and then you figure out some solutions around it. So the solutions we came up with were, how do you incentivize uh, community level workers to step up? Um, how do you get them information? Simple things like giving them a cheap cell phone so that they can text uh, to say that somebody is leaving and that, that uh, they can communicate with the patient. Um, and then to coordinate by SMS, uh, uh, things that we do in daily life, uh, but can you have a healthcare system that's sort of failing uh, and you can substitute some of these personal ways of uh, coordination? Uh, to substitute for institutional failures in communication. Um, and it works. So we made that report. I presented that in uh, those findings before the WHO in Geneva. Um, uh, those results were adopted. Uh, and now all my recommendations on the, from the panel uh, have been adopted in India and six other countries. So the real impact is if you feel that some kids are born without HIV, that's that's good. Uh, you used your smarts in some useful way. That's it. I still haven't published that paper, by the way. It's taken me seven years. So I'll get it up. I'll get it up. Because I'm the junior co-author on that paper. Just think of who my senior co-authors are. <laughs> Jerry, there's a question from, Su from Sukun Kang. Hi, Jerry. And others. Oh, I'm so come from LBS. Um, so I resonate with your, you know, big challenge and how you are trying to tackle this problem. So I have a project on similar field. Uh, I'm working on a project on an expanded access. Um, you may have heard of it because of the COVID. It's about providing access to the investigation drug, and it's really up to pharma's decision to do that. Um, so um, from the patients and you know healthcare perspective, this is definitely very important. Uh, we're like, why don't you do it? You, you, are you a bad pharma? You know, you gotta do it. And so I was kind of stuck in that mindset, right? And I gathered the data and I was pro like collecting data and I got, got a chance to talk to pharma perspective, pharma personnel. And it kind of hit my head. They were like, oh, we really want to do it, but it's just that limited resources, you know, we are doing this clinical trials here. How can we provide an access to investigative drug in the other country and so on? So um, then I realized that you know I was just looking at just one dimension um, of this phenomenon and 
even theoretically, right? Um, so, so what, what, what's your like take on, like how as a PhD student, right? I, I'm, I'm obviously if, have a far way to go. And if I start taking everybody's perspective and it's, it's really hard to pin down a problem, I think. Um, so is it, is it better for me to kind of take a one side perspective and try to theorize and tackle a research question that, or do I need a holistic perspective? It's a tough question, I think. So no, in fact, it's an easy question. It's the answer is uh, relatively easy. Um, think about it this way. Um, none of the questions we're we're asking now is holistic anyway, right? If you take a philosophical position that we measure only what we see, that means there are a lot of things that we don't see, right? So, so for you, uh, you take, I would say, take the first question that you have the data for that could give you the most comprehensive answer that you can possibly get at this time. That's it. So if it's one perspective in terms of pharma data, then use just that. But in your discussion, you should leave these crumbs, these crumbs where you can then pick up later, where you sort of say, you know, I've taken this as a pharmaceutical example, and, um, uh, but the perspective may very have a different uh, implication if you look at it from another perspective, right? One thing I do know is, uh, and I've always, it's been amazing as a journey is that uh, everybody wants to do good, uh, whether it's a pharmaceutical firm, whether it's an oil company, they want to do what is the right thing. I think people in leadership want to do the right thing. What they are constrained about are, are either their business model, um, how can we reach, for example, access issues, um, uh, you know, whether it's uh, geographic reach or social reach. Uh, we, we need the last mile, but I can't get to the last mile. I'm not sure how to do it, right? Or business model typically gets reflected in it's too expensive to do something this way uh, and therefore we don't do it. But if somebody wants to do it, we are happy to support it. So I think everybody has good intentions. So when you study something, especially when it has a social impact, you, you have to be open to the fact that even though you may go in thinking uh, pharma is all bad, uh, you may be surprised that, there, the, that this, the answer that you come up with would be far different from what you went in with, right? So being open about it, open-minded about it is very important. And whatever question we ask is you're gonna be as comprehensive for the data you have, right? And you can answer only what, you, you, what data you have. And then you can build a career out of it. Uh, expanded access is a topic that's not gonna go away for the next 30 years. So if you made your entire life on improving access, you would have done well. Thank you, Jerry, that was very helpful. Jerry, there's a question from Angel Sharma. Hi, Jerry. So, hi everyone, I'm Angel from UNSW in Sydney. Uh, I'm in my second year of my PhD. I was speaking to my supervisor about a few weeks ago and he said it took him about 10 years to actually master the art of publishing in top journals, the likes of AMJ and SMJ. And me sitting there as a PhD student, I was thinking, 
geez, this, this is a long time. So I was just wondering what your tips would be for people like us on how to get ahead, because we have to run quick and fast, especially if you want to land jobs in those good business schools. Thank you. So, so, so where your supervisor is right is that there is, uh, I'm not sure mastery is the word, but I think there are significant efficiencies over time on how you write. Right? So uh, if I want to write now, uh, I don't think it's that difficult for me to write a paper, right? Uh, um, and I don't write a section 10 times as I used to, right? I write it once and maybe go and edit it again and that's it, right? So uh, there are significant efficiencies. So the way that I would always say is that in your first few papers, collaborate, work with others, work with folks that who've done this before, uh, who, who know how to frame issues. Uh, there are certain things in a paper that are important, um, you know, framing in terms of uh, making sure that you ask the right question and um, um, articulating a contribution in an interesting way. I think that comes with experience. Uh, so if you can collaborate with somebody early on, I think that's the best way to do it. Um, uh, in fact, I interviewed one um, finance colleague. Um, uh, we've just hired her. And, uh, you, you know, for um, years, she was working on two single author journal of finance papers. They both were accepted. But for she hadn't published anything for six years. And because of that, she had to move two institutions, you see. Um, she didn't get through midterm review in her first institution. And the second institution didn't want to take the risk because it was already, what, six, seven years since she's graduated. So I've just hired her and she's gotten two journal of finance papers, right? But both single author. And I asked her, what was the decision you made that you, you she said, that was the worst decision that I made thinking that I could do this paper by myself. Because if I had gotten the paper with a more experienced co-author earlier, I would have gotten this paper done, right? And in the interim, she also had three kids, right? So uh, this is this is life, right? So you can't be, I know some people are superwomen but, uh, and supermen, but um, uh, not everybody is. So, uh, right? Uh, so you, you just have to um, mitigate your shortfalls by using partnerships. Thank you. Jerry, there's a question from Miranda Elizar. Hi, um, I really appreciate everything you said, especially talking about your time at AMJ and studying phenomena and theory. Uh, having submitted papers to AMJ and gotten a common comment of you don't have enough contribution or I don't know if you will have enough contribution after you do your R&R, those type of things. Do you have any advice, especially if you do have a good, interesting phenomena and that might be where you start but you're kind of thinking about the theory at the same time and trying to make them both go together in a way yeah. that they'll accept. So, so AMJ is, is a tough journal simply because, uh, you know, people self-select before sending it to AMJ and, you know, 6% of the papers get in after that self-selection, right? So you're looking at competing with 1500 other papers so I'll tell you what I thought of when I was an editor. So I'll tell you my schedule. I wake up 5.30 every morning and by seven o'clock I would have written five decision letters. 
right? And then I'll go and be Dean, right? Uh, uh, because that has its fair share of other rubbish. So, so if you think about it, then you get about maximum 30 minutes of attention. So how do you convey something interesting, something counterintuitive in that 30 minutes, right? So if I get seven papers or eight papers, uh, I would desk reject between three or four papers. Um, and then I would write those letters that same morning when I read them, right? Um, and, and so a desk reject usually conveys uh, your contribution, it's an interesting problem, but you, you're not talking about it enough, right? And that's, that's typically what, and what does that mean? When I think about it, it doesn't have that, wow, that's cool, right? It doesn't frame a question in a way that makes you think about it, think about it, right? So um, another way of saying this is, if I asked that same question to five different people, would they give me the answer that you found, right? If only one of them gave that same answer that you found and two or three of them said, well, I don't know what the answer is. That's an interesting question. If it is kind of intuitive that that's the answer that you're gonna give, it's, you're, you're not gonna go into AMJ. So if you've got a study, just frame the question and ask five different people who you know. And if they come up with your answer, then write the paper differently. Okay, thank you. There's a question from Michael Holmes. Oh, Michael. Hey, Jerry, this has been great. Thank you for doing this. And, um, and thank you for staying up until 11 p.m. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on our behalf. Um, there's there's several people on this call, I think, who have volunteered in organizations like the Academy or SMS or, you know, similar organizations. Um, and I was wondering just about the role that those organizations help play in your career. Um, and what would you say maybe to junior scholars who are thinking about volunteering, uh, you know, with some of those organizations or, you know, the journals or whatever. And I just wonder, you know, how important was that to your career? In what ways did that influence your career? And what would you say to uh, maybe junior scholars who are looking into that? I'll give you a different analogy. If you move to a different country, the best way to make friends is through your, uh, go to take them to your kid's school and you'll make, you'll meet other parents. It's the same way, right? That uh, the Academy, the Strategic Management Society, all of these professional organizations are ways for you to make friends without feeling awkward. And so the way that I would say it is just, just go and do small things. I started off with like uh, um, in the entrepreneurship division, my first job was welcoming newbies into, into the academy. I think, I, I don't know what it was called, but it's like newbies into the academy, right? Uh, making sure that they could register and things like that. I'm sure we do that thing now as well. Um, then slowly it went into a research committee and then something into awards committee, you know, slowly you just expand the number of things that you do. And while you're talking to friends and so forth, you meet others and they'd say, hey, can I review for, let's say an AMJ. The only way you're gonna get noticed by AMJ is if you go and ask them, right? There are too many good people around the academy that 
that you do not deserve to be asked. Some people would say, oh, I'm so good, I deserve to be. No, no, nobody deserves to be asked. If not you, there's some other bloke, right? So the only way that you get these opportunities is to put yourself out there, not in terms of like Uber networking, and some people do that. Uh, I get annoyed when people only read my card and then read my name and then talk to me. Um, it, it's the same way, uh, right? Uh, um, you, you go to the academy to make friends and uh, build a network. Um, I wouldn't have met Shakur Zara had I not sat in the last table of, of a conference where all of us were trying to get out. Um, <laughs> I'm sure many academy sessions are like that as well. So, right, uh, you, you just have to be there. Uh, volunteer, um, uh, uh, being invited to AMJ Associate Editor was because I did a good job reviewing for AMJ. And AMJ tracks every review that you do, every how timely it is. It calculates a score of how many days you took and uh, uh, how the editor rated your review. And you build that over years of time. And then if you're consistent in what you do and you really care, uh, it'll show. And when they call out for associate editors, we just take the top 40, 50 of these reviewer scores and then go through one by one and then build a team, right? So um, that's how it happens. It doesn't happen magically because uh, I did not know Jason Colkett because he was an OB guy, very nice guy, uh, who was in University of Georgia, right? Uh, and I'm in London Business School. So th these are not connected institutions, uh, but the only thing that connects is your sort of history of consistent effort. Uh, and people know, uh, you, you get a reputation of if you're a bit of a chaser or social climber or something like that, people will also know that. Right? Mm. So, so be genuine in your attempts, uh, really feel like you want to improve the community and uh, the community will, will give back to you in, in more ways. I've benefited uh, immensely from the academy more so than I've ever given it. I've given a lot to AMJ, but I've benefited a lot more than that. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being so frank as well. Jerry, I'm curious, are, you mentioned you have two daughters. Are either of them pursuing academia by chance? <laughs> you know, um, I think they're traumatized looking at my work schedule. But um, my elder daughter, she finished uh, um, undergrad in economics uh, at LSE. Um, and then uh, uh, she did uh, design thinking in Royal College of Art. Now she works in McKinsey. Um, so I gave her my uh, Africa data for a study and uh, she published a paper on uh, uh, women and rural electrification on how distance matters, uh, that women are the ones who are on the outskirts of villages, uh, especially if they've lost their husbands and it disproportionately affects them. Uh, she looked at that data and she found it out herself because I wasn't looking at gender as a specific topic, but she was. And then we published it together. So oh, that's no, she does not want to do it. She wants to be in McKinsey. But she, but you influenced her. She's doing research, right? I mean, even while at McKinsey. So that's wonderful. I, I, I needed to ask you because none of my kids uh, are entering academia. They've told me. So I think I have traumatized them somehow. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for, for being so candid and, and giving us, um, yes, applause. Um, it's staying up late. I think it's, it's safe to say we, we're going to let you go 20 minutes early because it's late and you've, you've given us a lot of your time. Um, but I think we're all very thankful. And thank you for being the first scholar that STR was able to interview. Um, Hopefully it wasn't too boring. No, oh, goodness, you couldn't be boring if you tried. It was super awesome. Super. Thank, you. Thank, you. thank you everybody. Thank you, Shamina. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank you, everyone. Have, have a good night. Thank you, Jerry, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.